0: All right, good to see you guys. <coughs> my assignment in this series of critiques of, of teachers uh, that are well-known uh, worldwide or at least national-wide, his name is Joseph Prince, and you might not have recognized that name. Uh, only a couple of years ago did I uh, have my cable provider uh, put TBN one channel click away from the news that I watch. So unless that happened, I never would have known about Joseph Prince a couple of years ago. On the other hand, I'm glad I have because I started to say to Gary, even a couple years ago, and Bill Sasser, I talked about it when he was here visiting, about the the hybridization of the prosperity and the word-faith movement, which I classify, and that's how I describe the hyper-grace movement uh, or called uh, modern grace movement. There's a lot of different terms for it. Joseph Prince is a subscriber to that modern grace movement. And this is not just a critique of Joseph Prince, but it is also of the overall modern Greece movement because it is relatively new. Uh, most people don't or haven't really taken the time to really look at these preachers who actually have changed from a charismatic model and style to even a little bit more of a, you could say, a um, almost an expositional, cross-centered grace oriented preaching and that sounds great and it is but I've never heard charismatics and Joseph Prince in particular speak so much about grace you wouldn't have heard that 30 years ago 20 years ago to the degree that you do when you turn the television on on the other hand the devil's into the details is it not? and that is always the case and by the way I'm not making a reference to Joseph Prince as being the devil (laughs) not at all he has many good aspects Joseph Prince is probably the most articulate of the modern grace teachers there is much to like about him he regularly reminds his hearers about the cross his statement of faith on his website though basic is orthodox and sufficient and he obviously has a vision for the church to glorify God Born May 15, 1963, a Singaporean, author of 26 books and counting. His net worth is approximately $5 million a year, or I should say overall. He is married to Wendy Prince in 1994 and has two children. He is charismatic, like so many on television, but not all. He says, quote, God wants to transform, heal, provide for us, so that we can live a blessed and victorious lives that will impact and help others. Nothing wrong there. He is one of the founders of the New Creation Church in 1983 in Singapore. His reach is worldwide, and he is a regular contributor to TBN, good friends with uh, the fellow from Dallas, uh, Joe Olstein, and um, uh, he has attachments too to the word-faith teachers of the past. Uh, I think I've even heard him mention Kenneth Hagin once before, too. In 1997, he says he received a commission from God, quote, God told me, son, you are not preaching grace. You attempt to balance grace with law. And the moment you balance grace, you neutralize it. If you don't preach grace radically, people's lives will never be radically blessed and radically transformed, quote unquote. From this point on in his life, his ministry changed dramatically in emphasizing grace. What you'll find if you were to spend some time, I spent over two years watching him on TV. I'm going to stop watching. Uh, not to say he doesn't have good things to say, but I i can find better time listening to teachers who are have less error, in my opinion. Uh, but the idea, though, is, is that he uh, is a person who uh, is trying to fulfill that, Not just vision, but direct announcement from God to his own heart. One time he said just a few weeks ago, whatever God tells me conversationally, I tell you, to his 63,000 member congregation. His success with this modern grace message has led to a second church in Irving, Texas called Grace Revolution Church. Theologically, as prosperity and word faith roots, religion will tell you that God wants you sick to teach you character and patience, he says. Religion will tell you that God wants you poor so that you will learn humility. It sounds noble, doesn't it? But these are lies from the pit of hell. Religion in the word faith, I should say, well, yes, word faith, prosperity in this hyper grace movement, modern grace movement is you could say anathema almost now the way they preach against religion and it's the biblical word by the way I have chosen to include statements from other modern grace teachers to help us understand not just Joseph Prince but the movement overall when you add the prosperity and word faith movement, a tainted emphasis on grace, you have the makings of a worldwide revival of error I want to say that I give thanks and I didn't bring the two books in I regret it um, I read two books by Michael Brown theologian Hebrew and Greek scholar from Colorado I think uh, Gary hooked me up with him he's on the radio a lot um, I also have uh, gone through um, uh, a, good, a good little percentage last night of uh, um, Joseph Prince's book newer book uh, Live the Let Go Life and two years of TV um, which is enough. Um, let me give you a true definition of grace, because I'm going to be honest with you, it's a little bit more, I think, I think it's nuanced more this discussion on Joseph Prince and the larger understanding of the modern grace movement, uh, because uh, the words sound so good. Uh, they sound so accurate. And you could watch ten shows, and you might not pick anything up but if you know where they're coming from in those ten shows you will probably pick something up for sure Um, a true definition of a grace though this is by A.M. Hunter I get it out of uh, Michael Brown's book and by the way I give him all the credit the chronology of this critique is simply a chronology of the categories that he brings up and relationship to not just Joseph Prince but the modern grace movement as a whole true grace is this the free forgiving love of God in Christ to sinners, and the operation of that love in the lives of Christians. Modern grace teachers raise their hand with us with the first half of that definition. The second half is what they have a problem with, the operation of grace within us. Sanctification is the major doctrine of difference, for sure, but it has a whole lot of baggage that comes with it. Joseph Prince's understanding of grace and its effects upon the believer lead to a response that corresponds to Prince's latest book title, "Live the Let-Go Life." Kind of, if you're older than 50 years old, you probably got a familiar ring going on there, and I'll connect that. Is Joseph Prince's hypergrace misleading many Christians to think that all Christian must do is place one's faith in God's grace, and God will sanctify him or her by simply believing? God will fulfill his promise to make us a sound Christian without any effort on our part. Is that so? That's the question to answer. I have chosen to focus on this doctrine of Joseph Prince because grace is that important. There are more differences between the two of us than just the doctrine of grace. His charismatic doctrine is the biggest difference. Healing and the atonement is major, it's strewn through throughout the whole message, all of his, almost all of his messages, like so many of the charismatic preachers. His charismatic doctrine is the biggest difference, but these doctrines pale to the Calvary's cross and the power of God's grace to change And that's why I focused on that. Many modern grace teachers speak of a grace reformation. Listen to this. Now, so many that Michael Brown quoted out of his book uh, were people I just never heard of. I'm out of the loop, I guess. Um, Pastor Clark Witten says, grace teacher modern grace teacher Luther and Calvin got it right concerning justification but they missed it on sanctification when you go against history the guardrails are down and you can go over the cliff pretty quick statements like this makes the claims of hyper grace teachers significant for established doctrines of the faith and history are at stake the implication of the modern grace teachers is that the reformation put the church in 500 years worth of legalistic religion quote unquote and only a fresh and new understanding of grace can be can change that. The charismatic movement of the 20th century and many of the proponents of the grace movement have certainly directed the church to this moment in history. Their non-reformed views of man's salvation and sanctification have always been different since the 20th century even. They simplified the Christian's relationship to God to its lowest denominator with the phrase let go, let God. Remember that phrase in the... In the Anybody older than fifty here? It's pretty bad when you finally get to be a teacher in the church all these decades and now you're looking for that and say, What did I see all those thirty four or thirty six years? Feeling pretty old right now. It is an easy transition from letting God to save us, which I even have a problem with that phrase, to letting God do all the work in salvation without man having to lift a fingers. grace proponents would take exception to this they would say that God's love motivates the believer to live for Christ and they, they don't It's it's not a doctrine of sanctification that's absent from doing something that is uh, holy like and I say holy like because they don't like to point to texts of scripture that refer to anything that confuses labor upon us because they call it law and I would agree with them that sometimes we get close to almost mischaracterizing them from this standpoint, that there's nuances of differences. And when you try to park out those nuances of differences, it's really tough to stay on that you know, site that you're trying to go to. Anyways, in reality, though, the model, the title, the live the let go life, let go and let God, Uh, simply rejects an understanding of the gospel that would include expectations from God's grace to be sanctified as a command. Just as simple as that. Mm. One former grace teacher says, I got out of Michael Brown's book, grace, quote, only empowers us to do things. It never tells us to not do things. That's legalism. Mm. Any mentioning that God's grace would require the believer to strive to be holy is viewed as legalistic. And as you can see, the doctrine of sanctification is a very important truth to understand this so-called hyper-grace or modern grace controversy. One doctrine Michael Brown points out and asks the foundational doctrine, is the extent of Christ's atonement. This is really key. Has Christ finished work forgiven everyone, every believer, of their past, present, and future sin? Now that's got an awful lot of Detail that has to be discussed in that. I'll leave that for the question and answer session. Joseph Prince says in regard to this view, Michael Brown takes the position, and I understand his position. I have a reformed position that he's not reformed, so in relationship to that, I have a nuanced difference from Michael Brown. In the same breath, though, we are on the same page in relationship to the error of Joseph Prince. That is this. Joseph Prince says, His grace is cheapened, When you think that he has only forgiven you of your sins up to the time that you got saved and after that point you have to depend on your confession of sins to be forgiven. God's forgiveness is not an installment, my friend. The day you received Christ, you confessed all your sins once and for all. I agree with 80% of that. 90% of that. There's There's a caveat. Now this is a very important statement. Does God only forgive our past, present, and uh, past and present sins and does God's forgiveness depend upon the Christians repentance of their sin keyword there when they sin in the future the hypergrace teachers believe that a Christian's repentance is at work uh, is a work equivalent to the long grace paradigm of the New Testament Pastor Ryan Rufus says if we sin in the future this gives a lot away if we sin quote in the future don't start asking God for forgiveness don't confess that sin. Don't repent of that sin. Keep walking in the grace covenant. You see the nuanced difference. See, they're jumping off the cliff. They're okay staying on the edge of the cliff, but they jumped off the cliff with statements like this. All right. Once again, notice this critique of Joseph Prince and the larger modern grace movement very quickly gets into the nature of the atonement. That's why in the panel I said if anybody wanted to be able to defend against it, the atonement is where you want to go. So now we should realize how important these studies are to the church. I agree with Michael Brown that the atonement of Christ demands something of every believer. And this is a life after conversion that consists of a life of repentance, confession, cleansing, and refreshment by the Spirit of God. When we first believed, God forgave us of our past sin of debt. We owed, and the present sin we were confessing. The atonement the hyper-grace teachers teach emphasizes a forgiveness in the future that does not demand repentance because the sin has already been forgiven. So you do not have a life... For instance, maybe the Puritans took it a little bit too much, but I love, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Mm-hmm. And mourn over my sin leads me to repentance, leads me to life in Christ. I get emotional when I start t- t- talking about these things because we're talking about critical doctrines of our Savior. <clears throat> Hyper Grace teachers, especially Joseph Prince, properly teach and emphasize that the believers declared righteous when we place our faith in Christ. That is the pivot point. Listen to Hyper Grace teachers; you will hear this all, all, all the time. Instead of emphasizing or instead of staying on target with um, with the grace message that we are sinners, but Christ has forgiven us, and when we repent, He's faithful and just to forgive us of all sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But you don't have to think that way. They say, basically, you just need to think properly about your righteousness in Christ. And that is true to a certain point. We are righteous in Christ. The transaction is done by the justifying work of Christ. And we are declared righteous. But they so emphasize the righteous part, then they drop the sanctifying part. I mean like a hot rock. So, everybody on the same page? Is that just uh, no questions? But you know, anybody? Okay. It's nuanced. It's more. Criti- it's more critical. I mean, it's more technical for these hyper- mo- uh, modern grace teachers. This right standing before God then is taken to the extreme by believing there is no more need for repentance and confession. I can't overemphasize that as often as they emphasize it. <coughs> repentance and confession of sin is the glue to our sanctification. It cements our relationship to God as we grow and completes the bond of peace between us. The New Testament regularly, James 4, 4 and 8, um, for instance, reminds the church of current sin. Go to First John. Go to Jesus in the Gospels. It's everywhere. Not to contemn the person all over again. Uh, let me reread that. The New Testament regularly reminds the church of current sin. Not to condemn the person all over again, but to remind them to seek forgiveness. You will never see in the New Testament any author advocating a view that sees sin as a non-issue. Mm-hmm. Yet, modern grace teachers say our future sins are forgiven. We don't need to be, quote-unquote, conscious of sin. Could you imagine the temptation to sin because your future sins are already redeemed for and you are being taught to be unconscious to sin? Let me be clear, brothers and sisters. The well of Christ's shed blood is so deep it can never go dry to many future sin we commit. But the hyper-grace teachers have turned it's on its head, the reformer's view of sanctification. And boy, I'll tell you, they would probably burn, and I'm saying this metaphorically, burn John Owen's book on mortification of sin. And that book helped me out so much to understand my responsibility. And the operation of grace in my heart where my life is changed in a progressive way. You see, they neglect one of two things of sanctification. They accept positional sanctification and they reject progressive sanctification. Mm-hmm. James 5, 4 through 15 says if, any, if, if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. The scripture says, do not present your bodies as an instrument of unrighteousness. Just these two simple little texts amongst these, easily found in the Bible, describe the Christian's mindset towards sin. We are to diligently watch ourselves, guard our heart, right? We are to guard our heart so that sin would not overcome us. And if we do sin, Jesus remains our advocate for sins yet to be committed. And I'll tell you, they would, Agree with my statement about guarding the heart is a text, obviously, right? Um, uh, Guide your heart is another text in the Old Testament. Proverbs, I think it is. And the idea is that, in one sense, they agree, and then another sense, because they are molded and they are driven by this modern grace understanding, and remember, by revelation, remember, by not accepting the Reformation view of sanctification, they have to then always tweak every verse they run into that seems to imply that there's some striving required of us in sanctification. The Christian life is lived by the knowledge of Christ's sufficient sacrifice for sin. We also live as believers who acknowledge that we will sin in the future, and when we do, we are ready to confess our sins to God for a continual cleansing from it. But hyper-grace teachers reject this. In fact, they consider it sinful to confess sin already forgiven. They say the Holy Spirit would never convict the Christian of sin. Joseph Prince, quote, says, The bottom line is that the Holy Spirit never convicts you of your sins. He never comes to the point to point out your faults. I challenge you to find a scripture in the Bible that the Holy Spirit uh, comes to convict you of your sins. Huh? Huh? Michael, Michael Brown goes to Revelation 3, 19-22. I said, why don't you just go to the whole six out of the seven churches in the book of Revelation in chapters 2 and 3. Bringing out the sins. I, I commend you, but then I have this against you. Right? Six out of the seven churches. Just there. How about James, 1 John, and the Gospels? Once again, though, they have their answers. And it's too much for today to give their answers. If someone asks a question, I'll answer as best as I can. The hypergrace teachers teachers uh, make Christians who are sincerely confessing their sins daily weak Christians who don't understand Christ's finished work. That is so cool. A strong Christian does not need to confess sin because he understands he does not need to be forgiven again. Just, it's just reverse, isn't it? I want to call it twisted, but these are very smart people. I like Michael Brown's quote in contrast to the, this faulty view. Confessing sin to God is part of our intimate relationship to God. Anybody want to raise their hand about that? Absolutely. I like Michael Brown's view. I'm part of it. And he's not reformed like I am and we're in agreement with that. It is a privilege to go to God and cry out to Him as our Father saying, Forgive me, Lord. This kind of response to sin in our life is a relational one, quote-unquote from Michael Brown. It is a confession of love to God. It says to God, I love you enough, Lord, to examine my life daily and to seek your fatherly forgiveness and love in return. 1 John 1, 7. He didn't quote it in his book, but he pointed to it. And I'm just going to quote it to you because I just love it. If you walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Christ cleanses us from all sin. There is a logic to the modern Greek teachers. God has forgiven past and present sin to the degree that sin does not need to be confessed and repented of after we are saved. This logically means the Holy Spirit would never convict the believer of his sin throughout his life because his sin has already been atoned for and you're righteous in Christ. Then even some, not all, and not from what I can find, Joseph Prince then even some hyper-grace teachers have already gone on the bandwagon applying their logic to the unsaved. That is, the unsaved will not be convicted by the Holy Spirit of their sin. It's a slippery slope and a snowball down a hill. And I wouldn't expect if if this continues on in the fervor that it is in ten years, a larger share or majority of the modern grace teachers will agree with the universalism aspect of this. This way of thinking reminds me once again of the 20th century phrase let go and let God as if man unsaved or saved has no responsibility or accountability to God. Michael Brown quotes Charles Spurgeon. I love it. I've heard this before. Um, Too many think lightly of sin and therefore think lightly of the Savior. Mm -hmm. If our spiritual life does not include a struggle, a fight, a battle against sin, we are thinking too lightly of our Savior, brothers and sisters. Hypergrace teachers recoil at this thought, and I would too if someone actually applied this reasoning to me. But what conclusion can we come to when Joseph Prince says, quote, The Holy Spirit never convicts Christians of sins. He never comes to the point of your faults, point out your faults. It does not take a revelation from the Holy Spirit to see that you have failed. However, when you know that you have failed, what you do need is for the Holy Spirit to convict you of your righteousness. See the switch? Rather than being convicted of sin, you're convicted of your righteousness. If you're convicted of your righteousness, you place your faith in God. You place your faith in God. You don't have to do anything because you have an effortless spirituality because therefore you don't have to do anything. Christ has done it all. Let go, let God. The half-truth is no truth at all. Yes, the Holy Spirit tells us that Christ's atonement has made the Christian Christian righteous in Christ. But the righteous work of Christ is... In us does not exclude the Holy Spirit from working in us the righteousness of Christ. This is only accomplished by the ministry of God's Spirit in the believer, the conviction of sin. Look at Job. Did not Job put on righteousness in a clothed? Hyper grace teachers believe both the unsaved and to save do not need to be convicted of sin and I would say that that's not all the hyperverse teachers but I'm repeating myself there for a purpose because I know it can get confusing and that's why I'm repeating myself so much so you get it, it took me two years to get it in Michael Brown's books because it comes naturally to them you don't need to be convicted of sin because it comes naturally the world is judged because of their unbelief in Christ not sin interesting um, he just died, uh, R.C. Sproul. I only heard him just a couple years ago, four, three years ago, just before he died. He says, you know, and this is a paraphrase of a near quote, he says, you know, he says, he says, I don't believe that people go to hell because they don't believe in Christ. He says, I think they go, the, they go to hell anyways just because they sin. And he's right there. Right? We have fallen short of the glory of God. Anyways, the Christian does not have to repent of sin and continuing in sin, but simply trust in the righteousness of Christ that is in them, they say. This belief will change them. The repentance of our sin will not change us. Wow. We must remember the convicting work of the Holy Spirit is the response of a God who loves us. That's critical. We don't want to be... Uh, We don't want to have the sense of a legalistic mindset that because you do these things and you are working out your salvation in fear and trembling, that somehow that work merits grace. That's not reformed. That's not true belief. It is that by the grace of God we go and the love of Christ constrains us. So, we must remember that the convicting work of the Holy Spirit is a response of God who loves us. When we are convicted by sin, we should be troubled by it. But the Holy Spirit will lead us from our mourning over sin to his comfort, leading to repentance. Look at 2 Corinthians 7, 8 through 10. I've got to read this. Michael Brown brought it up, but he just put it there. And that's a, one of my favorite texts that, 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 that counsels my own soul. 2 Corinthians 7, 8 through 10. Behold what earnestness this godly sorrow has produced in you! What vindication of yourself! What indignation! What fear! What longing! What zeal! What avenging of wrong! That's my own spirit, counseling my own self with Second Corinthians seven, against my own sin, to be like Christ. For sanctification to be effective, God's Spirit must convict the believer of his sins. Lead him to repentance and change of life. Modern grace teachers emphasize the changing of mind upon the righteousness of Christ in you, downplaying the Holy Spirit's role in bringing a true godly sorrow to the believer to initiate a change of life. The overall view of the hypergrace teachers on doctrine of Christian sanctification is very different from the Reformed view, as I've said. Joseph Prince says this, in relationship to Colossians uh, 2, when, he, when uh, Paul says, in him you are made complete or perfect. Colossians 2 says we are already made perfect in Christ. We don't work towards perfection. The minute you believe, Christ has made us perfect in Christ. You work from your perfection, not to it. Sounds good, doesn't it? Is there anything you can do to take yourself from the prison of sin to the prison called righteousness? We don't have time to articulate what he's meaning there, but you do get the jest. We're perfect. You work from that perfection in righteousness. You don't need to go back to confessing and being convicted of sin. John Crotter says, pretty profound quotes here, the moment you decide to do something to be holy, you have trusted in yourself instead of Christ for salvation. Logical conclusion, right? It is obvious hypergrace teachers view any human effort to be sanctification, sanctification sanctified in Christ as a legalistic and law orientated act. One hypergrace teacher calls the Reform view a murderous lie. Just because justification means we are pronounced righteous and declared righteous and now have a right standing before God does not mean God's declaration has made us in our daily life holy in in progressive sanctification. Modern grace teachers, Joseph Prince in particular, he says, do not believe in the progressive sanctification. In fact, uh, John Crowder says, the battle against sin, quote-unquote, is over. Reformed teachers consistently taught the Christian is set apart as holy to God, Michael Brown says by Christ's atonement and we are growing in holiness for the rest of our lives and that's true that's what he says that's what God says John Carter says the reformers were not reformed enough in their understanding of sanctification I really do believe it's like so many times and it's not just in this many times in argumentation especially and in, in debate um, we found this in um, many of the uh, debates we've had here at the church in the old storefront and others where um, it's nuances and misunderstanding of the other person's view and coming to different conclusions, which shouldn't be conclusions because they misunderstand the person that they're debating against. And I see that here. They misunderstand Reformed theology. And then many of them do understand it and they still sin. The scary part with the hyper grace teachers is their view of sanctification sees the Christian holy positionally and practically. You are already considered practically holy now, not working out your salvation in fearing internally, knowing that it is God who works in you to will and to do his good pleasure. Christ's atonement has, quote unquote, eradicated sinfulness from us, John Crowder, quote unquote. Statements like this border on universalism. Modern grace teachers emphasize positional righteousness at the experience of any recognition of God's call to the Christian to be holy in our daily life. Hebrews 10, just read it and you'll see both both the positional and the uh, progressive sanctification together just in one text. This faulty view leads to the hyper-grace teacher to reject biblical words used in our practical sanctification in our daily living, in our daily spiritual meditations. Work, strive—all biblical words. Made holy, be ye holy. Add, cleanse yourself, etc. All viewed as legalistic and law. At the least, Christians will be confused by their hypergrace, by these hypergrace teachers, with so many texts of Scripture unaddressed or applied to their view of practical sanctification. At the worst, this teaching will lead many to a spirit of sloth in an action towards their sin. <coughs> Errors like this do affect the Christian's relationship to God. Hypergrace teachers say God only sees the Christian perfect and righteous and does not look at my sin. It makes logical sense when John Crowder said in a sermon, quote, it's high time the church gets delivered from pleasing God. Quote, unquote. Joseph Prince says, because you did nothing to deserve his presence in your life, There is nothing you can do that will cause his presence to leave you. But he's emphasizing the do. We will emphasize he'll never leave you nor forsake you. But he sees fault in the do, in the work. It's law. Do you see the difference? Statement we can agree with, statement we must disagree with, right? My goodness, is Joseph Prince, by the way, some of the conclusions that I came to before I even read the pages of Michael Brown's two books that I read were the same conclusions. I'm just following along in his chronology and going, wow. I mean, I just, you know. So I have a lot in common with Michael Brown, even though he's charismatic. This is not a bad thing, too. My goodness, is Joseph Prince saying that my lifetime longing as a Christian to hear Christ say to me, well done, good and faithful servant, is actually the sin of unfaithfulness? That's what it leads to, conclusion, logically am I wasting my time by putting myself under the law and trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord that's the conclusion we must come to is there a life lived worthy of our calling that pleases God the answer from the scriptures is absolutely yes this presupposes then that the Christian can walk in a way that is not worthy to God and is calling for us this thought to a modern grace teacher is just false teaching to them it's an anathema they hate that hate it Joseph Prince, like other modern grace teachers, paint a picture of the Christian life being an effortless walk with Christ. When you are under grace, you will effortlessly fulfill and even exceed the expectation of the law of Moses, he says. Michael, Michael Brown in his book calls this effortless spirituality. What a waste of our time and God's time. This progressive sanctification is, I say facetiously. Joseph Prince says again stop examining yourself and searching your heart for sin remember that when someone takes his sin offering to the priest the priest does not examine himself does not, does not examine himself he examines the sin offering I'm thinking about that I'm saying ooh, you got that just all wrong what Prince's application implies is that in the Old Testament God was not interested in the character of the offerer offering his sacrifice but didn't the high priest have to offer a lamb for himself Right? That's the character that God wants as you enter the temple in the Holy of Holies. This kind of reasoning does lead to an effortless spirituality. No effort in holy living, just trust in Jesus and all will be well. Prince says again, quote, People who trust in their own efforts have no ability to see and receive blessings from the Lord. By the way, that's not totally untrue. We must remember monograce teachers make any Christian effort to be holy equivalent to salvation by the works of the law. But, a spirituality-led effort, a spiritually-led effort pleases God and blesses those who seek God. But Christians who trust in their works, and I agree with him there, if you trust in your works to bring blessings, well, you're not going to receive them. But from the frame of reference he's coming from, any trust is a work in the setting that he puts this striving in this context of discussion and therefore yes, I agree with him and then how you nuance it, I disagree with him God's grace must be what motivates us the paradigm is as follows all human effort to be holy is sinful, all holiness in Christians is effortless trust in Christ, that's it simplified Benjamin Dunn, fellow I don't know Uh, explains how this is practically accomplished. The only efforts necessary for this union with God were Christ. Just simply respond with childlike wonder and amazement at the work of Christ. Just shout, yes, I believe it. And I'll add, 20th century charismaticism, let go, let God. And also, his book, Live the Let-Go Life, by Joseph Prince. At this point, I have to Asked the question are the modern grace teachers reading the same Bible as I am this is one of the parts I read in Michael Brown's book and I came to the same conclusion next page he says the same thing: are they reading the same Bible as our, we are right are they is the doctrine of grace is the doctrine of grace this easy just believe you are already righteous and God will mystically make you holy have the labors of 2000 years of Christianity been for naught how about the martyrs right Labors of so-called legalism that have only recently been brought to light by a new grace reformation? I don't, I, I don't believe so. And, and by the way, brought by a ver, very verbal, inspirative moment given to him in 1997? Now by the way, that's not the... the uh, that would not be equally applied to all modern grace teachers. I can't say in reference to all of them if they uh, all have had a vision or, a, or God spoke to them concerning it. But for Joseph Prince... This is the change of his his uh, uh, change of his attentiveness uh, towards grace, and to make it more, you could say hyper emotional. I do recognize that some Christian teachers and believers do strive for holiness in a legalistic way. That the conviction of the Holy Spirit is abused by those who would place those who listen to them back in the bondage. Michael Brown, by the way, points this out, and one self examination of their life can be more hurtful than helpful. Having a morbid spirituality than a progressive sanctifying work of the Spirit growing in grace. There's a difference, isn't there? We are balancing. There are tensions that we deal with here theologically every day in the church, don't we? This being said, the Christian walk is not an easy one. But by the grace of God, we strive in the Spirit of God, the Bible says, to perfect holiness in the fear of God. Is there rest and peace in this life? Absolutely. Hebrews 4 says a lot about that. There therefore remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. As God rested from his labors at creation, we rest from any work or labor that would add to our salvation rest in Christ. Absolutely. Reform doctrine through and through. What I believe, what this church teaches. But as long as sin remains to be our adversary in this life, we can never rest in the crucifying of our flesh to the glory of God. Paul said, I die daily that the life of Christ will be manifested in our mortal flesh and His. Peter said, the man who suffers for doing what is good or right finds pleasure with God. We experience a common union with Christ, hatred of sin. We fellowship with God as we abide in the light of God. This is the Holy Spirit's ministry in us and it's our pleasure to suffer with God. We join in union with him on the cross. I can honestly say, Michael Brown says, I say a double amen to this, following Jesus has much more joy than a struggle. Michael Brown also quotes Smith Wigglesworth. I've heard Gary quote this guy. Great faith is a product of great fights. Great testimonies are an outcome of great tests. Great triumphs can only come out of great trials up to now the picture almost done up to now the picture painted by modern grace teachers is that God is so good and Christ's work is so complete that the believer only has to believe God will change him effort means law effortless belief means grace this view of God's goodness to, Christian, to a Christian leads to a view that God is always in a good mood and he has a whole other chapter on that and I didn't pick up on that too much. Uh, I'm Michael Brown, of course. This picture is of a benevolent, gracious God only desiring good for man and saint. This picture is not untrue, but it is woefully incomplete. And it may explain why, after watching dozens of hours of Joseph Prince on television, and Michael Brown brings this out too, his observations, watching and listening, is like, is this the only message this guy has? I have, I've heard him speak of God's wrath against... I, I've never heard him speak of God's wrath against the lost. I've never heard him speak of hell and judgment and those... Uh, well, probably over maybe 200 hours to listening listen to him over two years. It's a lot. All right. I've never heard of him. You never, ever, ever, ever hear in a positive context the sufferings of Christ. But, and I have to say this, have I watched all of Joseph Prince's sermons no but having so many of his sermons read and listened to him, if I preached as often as he does I would not wait for that long to include all of those subjects I just mentioned I just wouldn't I do believe hyper-grace teachers today side more with liberal teachers than ones. Michael Brown didn't make this connection but I did we all agree that Christ's gospel of grace is so gracious and loving of God we don't deserve it but modern grace teachers like liberal teachers remove, explain away, reject anything in the Bible that would steal from the love of God's grace upon the saved and the unsaved Hypergrace teachers like the Marcion heresy that Michael Brown brings out make a sharp antithesis of Paul law, gospel, wrath, grace works and faith and so on this dichotomy has been around for a long time Ask the average liberal pastor what he thinks about the God of the Old Testament and he will probably say we are under grace in Christ. This is true, but not at the expense of God's immutability. Unfortunately, the pitting of of the God of the Old Covenant against the New Covenant has led to the rejection of the New Covenant teaching that the Holy Spirit can be grieved by the Christian's sin and a suffering of relationship to God can appear. I've got a bunch of verses if you want some of those at the end of the, the study. It has also led to a redirection in today's evangelistic emphasis. If obedience to God's commands is seen as law, legalistic, and works righteousness, today's evangelism must avoid these antiquated methods of past of the past and preach the love of Christ alone. See more similarities with liberalism? Joseph Prince says the glory of the law is exceeded by the ministry of righteousness. Don't, I don't disagree with that what Prince means though is the preachers who used the law of God in the past to evangelize evangelized incorrectly the doctrines of the law and grace are very difficult doctrines but it is obvious which direction Joseph Prince and modern grace teachers have chosen they have chosen to make the commands in both the old and new covenant a work of man's self-righteousness and emphasize God's grace at the expense of these commands sadly this means the very commands of Christ himself are rejected as well let me quote this. So let me just, I just have to say this. They, like some Schofield dispensationals, uh, view the Gospels as Old Covenant explicitly. So the New Covenant didn't come in force, which I do agree with. didn't come in force after Christ's death and resurrection. But that does not mean that in the midst of the Gospels to which Christ preached, that he was not preaching not only uh, New Covenant theology, but the new covenant in and of itself that was going to be finalized and put in force in his blood while he was living. And you have that contrast going on between what was said. You have heard that it was said from, the, from long ago or from antiquity, but now I say unto you. Matthew chapter 5. And therefore there is, a, there is a transition of old covenant to new, but you can't say there's no new covenant in the Gospels. But that's where they come from. That's how they can reject so many explicit texts concerning when Jesus says, for instance, pluck out the eye and cut off the hand in relationship to sanctification, and so on. So anyways, Joseph Prince does agree with this theology, this hermeneutic. Only the latter applies to us today. The latter teachings of Christ after he was resurrected in terms of a new covenant understanding through, and they really emphasize Paul. I call this spiritual suicide. This belief destroys Christian sanctification. Pastor Ryan Rufus and other modern grace teachers says teaching the beatitudes to Christians produces legalism and religious pride, and or condemnation in them. Can you imagine that? Almost done. If I were in prison and the warden said to me, and this is my own comprehension after hearing that quote, and he said you can have one page in the Bible for a lifetime sentence of being a Christian which would you choose? And I think mine would be the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes. Blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. In Joseph Prince's book Unmerited Favor, he says, unfortunately, there are some believers who are cheapening grace in the finished work of Jesus because of their wrong beliefs. Has Joseph Prince considered his words uh, Uh, actually accuse people from church history like Edwards and Luther, Calvin, Wesley, Nettleton, Spurgeon, Whitfield, and so on of preaching a cheap grace? Could you imagine that? Here's the finishing quote. I've been reading Dietrich Bonhoeffer by Providence. By Providence. Isn't that neat how God works, huh? Joyston gets me a book I didn't order. Right? And I never read Bonhoeffer and Uh, his costly discipleship book fascinating, great book everyone should get it Dietrich Bonhoeffer evidently was struggling with in the 1930s uh, some of the very same issues from um, Christians back then who basically were saying this effortless spirituality because it's a finished work therefore you don't have to finish anything else as in sanctification Dietrich Bonhoeffer has great insight here he says some said Concerning modern grace teachers of the 1930s, some said, We were disciplining ourselves in vain. Some saying, It is extremely dangerous to us. After all, we're told our salvation had already been accomplished by the grace of God. Bonhoeffer responds, Deceived, weakened. Men felt that they were strong now that they were in possession of this cheap grace whereas they had in fact lost the power to live the life of discipleship and obedience. The word of cheap grace has been the ruin of more Christians than any commandment of works. Quote, unquote. All right. So that's it for the official critique. And we have some minutes left. Brotherness. Other than, you know, you still spend all the time on his false teaching about hyper-grace. Is there anything else you could put your finger on that is erroneous in his teaching. Well, I think, and it's, and, it's the, and I mentioned at the very beginning, very quickly, uh, the uh, healing and the atonement, and I'll, if everybody's familiar with that, but because of Isaiah chapter 53, 4 and 5, they believe that God compels Himself basically to heal for those who ask, and that also includes prosperity and everything else that you would desire in this life, and therefore and it's a cruel doctrine in my opinion because if you don't become prosperous if you don't get healed then you automatically even emotionally and spiritually ask yourself what's wrong with you? and therefore what they don't do is take into consideration the sovereignty of God that we do and how that interacts with God's promised blessings to us but not all blessings are equal to every Christian because God chooses to do to whom, who he, whom he pleases. He, call, he accomplishes all things according to his own good pleasure. It's his good pleasure, not ours. And he may choose one to suffer greatly until their end and bless another uh, greatly until their end. And that's his prerogative. Do I not have the right to do what I wish to that which is my own, he says, Jesus? Right? I think that's the biggest one. Because that's the charismatic influence that leads to these doctrines. Ken two-part two question. Mm-hmm. Um, first, um, do you feel as though uh, just Prince, and of course you put him on the top of a whole lot of hyper right? speech. Right. Um, are, are believers in error or just false speech? Well, you know, that's or always heard the, heard the $64 million dollar tough question. Yeah. I would say because we do have examples in the Bible that Gary and I were talking about, the Hymenaeus and Philetus and others mentioned in the Bible, where they're not mentioned as actually um, unsaved false teachers, but just false teachers. Uh, and so you have this, this tension within the church, and every church until Christ comes back again we will always have to deal with. Um, I say to me, well, and, 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 I, and Michael Brown says he believes that most of these guys are believers, and I would believe also, too, they do have a grasp of grace and the atonement to a certain degree, and then they make a mess of it. So I would say, yes, probably believers. But I'll tell you one thing if someone came up and had the number of people confronting these guys now, now this is starting to get steam, and also the critiques are getting to be uh, gaining more steam, um, uh, I would be questioning my own motivation and even maybe my own salvation be go, going so far errant in different directions. Okay, part two. Oh, yeah, yeah, go ahead. Real, real yeah. Um, to avoid um, this turning into a rant or ramble or a character assessment. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I tried not to do not that. He's a likable guy, let me tell you. I, call I love the guy in terms of, I wish I had a skill. Yeah. Would, um, and since you guys have done so much work and study on this yep. just it not make sense to reach out to them with the questions for the people that you guys are studying well they have because we are called to meet yes. sin with grace yep. and sin with kindness there are people from what I understand I heard it through Joseph Prince's own mouth uh, probably in the last few months you know, he kind of shook his head and he said, I don't know why people have, you know, problems with what we believe on grace. And that's a paraphrase, but it basically what he was mentioning. He was enlightened. Yeah, and it's <laughs> obviously, you know, Michael Brown gets a lot of hate mail and some of it just, you know, respectful mail too. I don't it. think you would send hate Yeah, well, <laughs> you know, I mean, when you're dealing with grace, let me tell you, it's, it gets pretty pretty well up in the stratosphere in terms of, uh, these are critical doctrines. This is the critical doctrine. Yep. Well, I have a comment and a question. Yeah. The yep. comment was, I'm glad to know that I can put the plank back in my eye, stop pummeling my body, and sin so grace in the bound more. <laughs> There you go. <laughs> yeah. there you go. Um, the question you talked at the beginning, you said um, that they think like religion, like God wants you to be poor. Now, by religion, do you mean other doctrines or like Catholicism or Methodism? Well, the the sense I get is that their overall view is that religion has failed on the grace message. And remember now, uh, the majority of these people that uh, I've been reading from, um, uh, they have one thing in common with Joseph Prince in this sense. (gasps) This is a new grace reformation. This is a new day, a new era. They had it wrong. The reformers—they had it half-right, and now that's disturbing. Mm-hmm. Because now you're trying, now you're finding fault with biblical history yeah. overall for the last two thousand years. Your yes. Sir. To, to law. Um, does oh. Mister Prince make any reference to like you know how you know the term like daily devotion? Like you get up and you have a. Study? Yes, I think he has a devotional book. Actually, I think he does. Oh, it, oh, it rings the oh. bell. Rings the bell. Because I've, I've had people tell me before that the daily devotions are, are a simple exercise in trying to impress God. oh it, it's not a required your uh, part of the... Yeah. It, that's, that's performance are not great. Yeah. You know, that's a very interesting statement. Very very astute of you. Um, uh, it, it's possible that hyper-grace teachers may take it to that extent only because they focus so much on any effort as being law-oriented. And it's a mistake. And and what they what they have done basically is they demonized many biblical words to hold up their hyper-grace view and to hold their view of sanctification. Angela, um, I was wondering. I don't know if you know this, but I'm really curious as to as far as these doctrines that they're putting out, how they how we would go about affecting how his church functions. I mean, if you're not getting any attention to any kind of sin, mm-hmm. then I'm sure they don't advocate accountability um, between brothers and sisters in Christ. Yep. Yet yeah, they're still going to sin against one another. Yep. Uh, but they can't give any attention to that. Well, and, and, and that's we don't the know thing. How he that's the tension concerned. in the fine line. I don't know all the ins and outs, but they do believe in holiness. So in other words, they want their people in their churches to live a right life. It's how you get to it, mm-hmm. how, you, how it is accomplished, or that beginning uh, definition that I gave in terms of uh, what true, a true definition, a good definition of grace is, it's the operation of that grace that has been given to us on the cross. Yeah too, too short. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. we have got time. You know, I don't know much about that New Apostolic Reformation. You, you teach me on that one. Okay, so, um second question is, uh, is their response to the Reformed view of sanctification in um, their sort of all vitriol, is, it, is that the same as Lordship salvation that they described by John McCarthy? Yeah. Uh, you know, that is a very good categorical area to go into. Um... I see why you're making the connection, and I totally agree with the connection. The question is, is Christ your Lord? Um, And does the Bible teach? uh, When it says, literally, try to learn, quote-unquote, what is pleasing to the Lord. And again, they would say, of course that's true, but you don't do it this way. That's the old religious way. See what I'm saying? So there's this really, you could say this undercurrent and subtle Eroding of a foundation of a reformation that took 1,500 years of abuse to correct. And all of a sudden, someone is called out by God and said, I need to change my message and be more focused on grace and we're going to change history. And it doesn't make sense even from a logical perspective, let alone a practical perspective of understanding history and how God works within it redemptively. Amazing. Todd, how do they deal with Romans 7? I don't know how I deal with Romans 7 some days. <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, because you were saying, we're we reading the same Bible, I imagine with the reading it through Romans, they, they just probably skip that chapter and go to 8. Well, I'll give you, a, not to deal with Romans 7, because I, I have not read any of that in my reading of them. Mm. Obviously, Romans 7, in my opinion, you've got to go to verse 1 first mm. to understand Romans 7. Mm-hmm. But he means Galatians five, the flesh lusting against the spirit, spirit against the flesh. Oh, okay, yeah, right, yeah, yeah. Well, I, yeah, because I, 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 I split those two a little bit differently. Uh, I understand where people are trying to make them equal, um, but um, let's just put it this way: when they um, interpret First John, they will, they will say that that letter was written to Christians concerning the Gnostics. Hmm. And was just barely getting its head out of water then. Mm. It was more then than it was 20 years earlier, of course, but it didn't get full-blown until the second century. So the thing is is that um, it helps them explain away uh, explicit text concerning conviction of sin, mm. repentance of sin, and all the rest. So they would, John, in my opinion, take any text that alluded to any of the doctrines, or I should say the words being used, or the emphasis on a progressive sanctification, they would, they would explain it away, whether they do the Gospels in terms of the New Covenant wasn't enforced until after the, uh, the resurrection of Christ, or how they deal with First John, and so on. They, and, and I'm sure they have nuanced, individual perspectives on each individual uh, text and also... For instance, I heard him deal with Philippians chapter 2, work out your salvation mm. with fear and trembling, knowing God who works in you with, uh, to will and to do His good pleasure. Uh, Joseph Prince, and this was only about three weeks ago, basically took that whole text and spent 95% of the time on the second part of the work. Not to work out your salvation, but the work of God in you. Mm. And he, 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 he emphasized the, 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 the progressive, ongoing, working out that God does within us correctly, in us his will but what about the working out your own salvation mm. he never he never even went to the word work and see and, and showed His body either or whether that work was the same equivalent uh, interpretation of work for the mm. second work and that and also he didn't discuss it hardly at all to balance the tension that by the way that's one of those really great tension verses that you need to teach properly mm. and he just he favored one side and if you want to if you want to Teach false teachings, you will favor one side. Uh, did someone else have just dis- Okay, one more. One more question. We got to go upstairs. One last one. Yep. I, I have heard just to his belief in the laying of of people that are there. Right. Right. How does that fit within? Well, it's part of that overall charismatic theology that comes from the 20th century. Uh, the li- the uh, let go, let God live the let go life they, they have this, this uh, you could say this string of uh, understanding the atonement where God when Christ said on the cross it's finished and because it's finished finished in sense of also not only your salvation but in healing and in prosperity and everything else and therefore I don't believe I, can, I do believe, I can say with certainty, they do not understand the atonement properly. They certainly don't believe, don't understand a substitutionary atonement properly. And, um, um, you know, when the foundation is cracked, the rest of the teaching will remain unsound. But we need to finish in prayer, brother. We've got to go up. So, brother Pat, would you pray for us? Yep. Father you... The goodness to us remains a source of uh, utter amazement and, and we are so pleased that you are pleased to dwell in our midst. Mm. We just want to love you and love one another with the heart of renewal that you've given us. Bless us as we sit under the preaching of the Word upstairs to, um, to be learning and growing. We pray to the Holy Spirit the Holy Spirit will do his work in conforming us to the image of Christ. Thank you for the efforts of your servant Todd, in preparing to teach and in the, uh, the ability of the class to interact. And in all these things we are humble servants in Christ. Amen. 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 Thank, Thank you. you. Thanks, Paul. How do I shut this off? Oh, just push the little stop button right there.